Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, there's an old saying that I believe comes from China, and I think it's attributed to Confucius, though I'm dubious about where it actually comes from. And it says, may you live in interesting times. Now, I've heard that this is actually a curse instead of a blessing, in a sense, because the interesting times are challenges and things we face that are unusual. And surely, that's where we are today. There's a lot of uh, interesting things happening in the world. Uh, It's just a very crazy time right now, and there's so many things going on and so many moving parts, and I don't think anybody's sure what's going to happen tomorrow, much less, you know, in a couple of weeks, a couple of months from now. So... The Disney parks decided they were going to close all six locations around the world. Starting on Monday, Disney World will be closed. By the time you're hearing this, it probably already will be. And so that means that every park around the world is closed. And also the Disney Cruise Line is not taking any new passengers, any new voyages starting next week as well. So interesting times indeed because things are evolving and we can't really say what's going on. Now, as I told you in a previous podcast, I had sort of a tentative plan before to go to Disney during my kids' spring break, which would be in about two weeks or so, but um, obviously that can't happen regardless, and I had already kind of decided I was going to wait it out and probably go in May instead, and that looks like that's the only choice I have now. So that's the way it goes, and it's unfortunate, and Disney is going to struggle a bit to recover from this in the long term, though I'm sure they'll do just fine. People are going to want their outlet. You know, that's one of the things about the world. You know, you have the outlet of sports and you have the outlet of like Disney. And those things don't exist in this world today just because of the nature of what's going on. And it's kind of an oddity because you don't have those fun outlets that we typically have. So I'll be watching a lot of YouTube videos on Disney to try to get my fix once in a while when I need that release. Or maybe I'll just uh, go to Disney Plus and see what they've got on there. I'm still a little disappointed in it, but I'll still watch it and see what they have. But I don't want to be a downer about this. In fact, what I'd like to do is go back and talk about something historical with Disney and uh, kind of share something with you. And this is to talk about the Contemporary Resort Hotel. Now, I did two video casts about this in my Lost and Found series, and I'll put links to them in my show notes page. So you can go and watch the videos about this. There was one about the Contemporary Resort itself and one about the mural that I'll talk about in a minute. So I'll put those links in there. But let me tell you the story. So when Walt Disney had this concept for his prototype community of tomorrow, this place he, he wanted to have uh, people in coming and working and living and doing things, he had this idea where he was going to get the best and the brightest of his Disney organization and the best and the brightest from industry to come together to make something really interesting and make something that's compelling. Now, one of the first things the Walt Disney Company did was they said, you know, we need to make a show place, something that really stands out that we could really sell. And it would serve two purposes. One, it's the sales pitch that we could say, hey, look, we worked with industry really well. And two, it could actually work as a convention center where we could bring other people in and show them things about what we're doing. And that became 
the basis for the contemporary resort. So if you go and you look at some of the early maps of Walt Disney World in the resort complex, one of the things you'll notice is the contemporary resort was right in the middle of the map. It was basically the central point, the focal point of everything that was going on around the Walt Disney property. The idea was to kind of make that the showplace, to make that the center, the centerpiece, to make everyone kind of come there and enjoy it uh, so that it could be something that they could really show off. Now, why did they want to show it off? Well, this goes back to working with U.S. Steel. U.S. Steel was this conglomerate that they were working with to help build the property. U.S. Steel had these ideas for uh, future of building and uh, what they could do in the future. And one of the ideas they had was to do some modular construction. At the time, there wasn't much going on. But they had an idea. They could build a steel frame and actually insert things around it in that steel frame to make the hotel. So between Disney and U.S. Steel, a plan was born. So they came up with this idea for an A-frame construction building that would be long uh, and have steel uh, girders going across that would actually kind of come up in sort of an A-shape or a pyramid shape that would be very long and you could put hotel rooms along in it and you could also put a little convention area where you could have some uh, meeting space on one part of it. So the idea was born. And so U.S. Steel went, went about actually designing and constructing this piece of property. And it was really kind of neat because the steel they brought in, they, they put the beams in, they ran the electrical, they ran the plumbing, they did all the things they needed to do, and then they brought in the rooms. The rooms were already pre-made and pre-furnished. And they were actually lifting them in with cranes and putting them into place so that they could actually attach them and attach the electrical and the uh, plumbing to them. And they would be up and running. And it was a fairly quick construction thing. And U.S. Steel created a video to show how this worked so they could use it as their sales pitch for their next evolution in the idea of building. So really pretty neat as, as that worked out. And if you watch the videos of it, it's actually pretty cool to watch them constructing it. It's really pretty clever the way they do it. Now the thing is, because it's an A-frame construction that's very long, you have to have some means of being able to get from the ground floor to the top floor. Now the, the building itself is only uh, 10 stories, including the rooftop terrace uh, where the, uh, the uh, restaurant is. So it's actually, uh, you have to have a way to get through those, those stories. And the way they decided to do that was to put a central column in the middle that would serve as the elevator shaft and a sort of a construction piece where you would have this ability to connect up and uh, have some uh, ability to uh, take away some of the stresses on the metals and so forth. So you'd have a concrete structure in the middle of it, it's dead center of it. So they put this together and uh, it was actually very clever and it allows you to have a staircase and some other things and they put staircases on the ends and uh, it actually is very clever the way they worked it out. So when you look at it, while it was being constructed, you had this very long frame that went around and looked like, uh, someone called it a blimp hanger. It looked just, for, just like you could put a blimp inside it. And that was the problem. It was huge inside. And how are you going to use that space efficiently inside when you just have this giant white concrete column in the middle of it and then a blimp hanger on either side? And that's when Disney started thinking about what they could do with it from there. And the idea was, what if we put a mural on that particular uh, column in the middle? And so they came up with a couple of ideas on what they wanted to do. And someone had called it, it was like, you know, this giant canyon you were looking into. It's, it's just so big, it's gigantic, like a canyon. And so they kind of came up with this idea, what if we called it the Grand Canyon? And uh, we thought of it, if you think of it like that, the mural could reflect some of that idea and some of that concept in there. So instead of being totally contemporary and futuristic, you could bring it back to reality and create a sort of a view that on the inside looks a little more rustic. 
so they uh, decided to reach out to Mary Blair. Now, Mary had done a lot of work for the Disney company. She had done a number of murals. She had worked on the It's a Small World attraction. She was the primary designer on most of the, uh, the dolls you see in the attraction and some of the sets and showpieces. And they said, Mary, we'd like to have this idea for a Grand Canyon-type concourse. And she took the idea to heart. She decided to create something like a Pueblo village that would showcase people living in the Grand Canyon. So the ground floor would be like the bottom, all the way down to the bottom of the canyon. And the top, up on the ninth floor, would be in the clouds. And she would create a mural that would go down and show sort of the, the, the progression going through the canyon. So you would have you know, animals, people, different things along the way that you could look at and kind of enjoy as you, as you looked up at the mural. Now, the interesting part of the mural is she did the mural on all four sides of the uh, column. But because of the way there's a, like a bridge that goes across between each side of it on most of the floors, I think it's through the second through the seventh floor, if I'm not mistaken, because there's that bridge going across, you have to actually uh, go and... Um, you had to actually break it up, and there were actually two murals on either side of that. So there's actually six murals total that are, exist on there. Two are very large and take up the whole panel, and two are, are narrower but are on either side of, the, uh, of that bridge. So it's kind of an interesting idea she had. And in doing it, she, she kind of got a southwestern motif going, where she kind of created some clever things where it's very southwestern feeling, and she decided to use muted colors and more, more colors that would be representative and evocative of being in the Southwest. So it's not like reds and greens, it's more like pistachios and burnt oranges when you look at it. And so she put it together and she put the mural up. Now the mural is fascinating. If you ever take the time to just stop by and look at it, there are animals, there are people, there's all kinds of things along in there that are really interesting. There's some other uh, textured things in there too that are like supposed to be like pottery and things like that too. And you can actually walk up and you can look at it and you can actually touch the lower level when you're standing on the fourth floor. It's amazing what you can do. You walk in there and you can just touch it and it's really pretty neat. So it's a, it's a remarkable thing. And as you're going along in the monorail, uh, on the monorail side, there's a little uh, bunny that you see as you go past and he's right at eye level through the windows. It's kind of cool. It's very clever. So it's one of those things you should take a look at sometime when you're there. Spend a few minutes and walk around it because it really is remarkable what she was able to do in that space. And the space looks more finished in that sense. It doesn't have that same cavernous feel. Without the mural, I think it would be you know, very cavernous and it would feel kind of empty. But with the mural, it kind of comes together to a large degree. So if you're standing on either end, you can see these large murals that go up to the ceiling. And they end in like blue clouds or red clouds, depending on which side you're standing on. And it's really, uh, it's really pretty neat. It's very, very um, kind of forward thinking in a way, even though it's kind of looking at something that's very grounded in reality. And then um, there's one special item that's up there, and that's the five-legged goat. Up on the side that faces Chef Mickey's, if you look up toward the top, there's some goats up there. They're kind of blue and white in color. And there's one that's standing on a ledge by himself more to the right that has five legs instead of four. And this was intentional. This was Mary's way of saying nothing is perfect in the world. It kind of brings us back to where we are today, right? Nothing is perfect in the world. Things have irregularities in them. So it kind of brings it all together. This is really telling a story. It's much more than just a mural that she's kind of tell telling you something. And it's really pretty cool. So that all came together as the design for what we have in the Grand Canyon Concourse. And it's the Grand Canyon mural, a Pueblo village in a way. And it's, uh, it's pretty neat. Now, as far as the actual uh, opening of the resort, 
once they opened it, they were able to use the convention center. Now you have to remember that in Orlando, there really was no convention space available uh, up until the Walt Disney World Resort came. And this was the first large-scale convention space that they had that they could use to bring people in. And use it they did. So Disney always was trying to make a pitch and sell things and make sure that they were getting the best and the brightest, getting companies to come in and work with them. So they'd bring them through here and they'd parade things out. If they wanted to show people something, this is where they'd bring them. It was always amazing how, how many different groups came through there and how much Disney used it to kind of sell their own thing. And remember that, you know, Richard Nixon used it to go talk to the, uh, the Writers Association when he gave his I'm Not a Crook speech. And then uh, it was used again when uh, the Disney company was pitching the idea for Epcot. And you had a number of people that came through there, including Jimmy Carter. And there was, a, uh, there was this uh, uh, International Chamber of Commerce that was going on. And all these people were there hearing about Epcot. And it was a great opportunity for them to be together in one spot. And then, of course, you had the Governor's Conference in 1975 that came there. And that Governor's Conference was really kind of interesting because this, is with, this was a time when they could really pitch the idea of making Walt Disney World something more, right? Actually building on the idea of what Epcot was going to be. This is where it all kind of came together. They'd been open for a couple of years and they were trying to figure out what they were going to be next. And how were they going to fulfill on Walt's vision? And this was the time and the place to do it. So kind of interesting that they brought all these people in and they shared with them the ideas that they had. And they, they brought it all out there and they were just kind of, they put it together and people got to see it and people got to experience it. Now, as I said, this was the only convention center in town for the longest time. So these were these rooms in this particular built building at, uh, in, in the Contemporary were always in use. In fact, they had to build the extension on the convention center, which is that blue and orange or green and orange, uh, or maybe it's green and pink colored building. It has like an awning on it that's a little bit green and pink. And uh, you go by it when, you, when you're heading from the monorail from the Transportation and Ticket Center to the, uh, the Contemporary. You'll see it down in there. And uh, it's actually an extension that they put on to have more convention space. And there's some larger rooms in there that they can actually use because they realized they needed more space. Now, something you'll notice over time, if you ever look up conventions and things that are going on, a lot of different places like to go to warmer climates when it's wintertime. So they'll go to Southern California, to Arizona, and to Florida. Now, for a long time, before you know, other places had built up their convention centers too, Florida was where everybody wanted to go. So there was always a convention going on somewhere in Florida. And because Orlando had that great space right there at the Walt Disney World Resort, and Disney pitched it that way, hey, come down here, have your, have your meetings here. Bring your families, enjoy the uh, vacation kingdom too. And so that worked out really well for them that they were able to do that. Now, I remember during the 70s and 80s, every time I would go to the Walt Disney World Resort, I would take some time and go over to the Contemporary just because I love the Contemporary. And I would um, go by and see what meetings were going on. Couldn't tell you what they were. Couldn't tell you if they mattered to me or anything. But there was always something going on. And that's what was fascinating to me. And then as an adult, doing different things where there's different conferences and things going on, there seemed to be always something going on at the Walt Disney World Resort, mostly at the Contemporary. Now, more recently, it started to move to the, uh, Cor uh, the Coronado Springs, where they're creating, creating a larger space for uh, meetings and so forth. And there's some talk about potentially removing the um, invention space and the meeting space from the contemporary, maybe just keeping a couple of the rooms there, but removing that extra building, and maybe creating another vacation club property there. I hope they don't, but if they do, it's fine. I mean, that's their business if they do. But I really hope they don't, because there's a certain nostalgia for that.
and the way it was built and the things that go on there. I mean, I'm just amazed at how it grew and how there are so many organizations that come there so regularly now. And uh, it's still used during the winter time and sometimes a little bit further out, some spring and fall as well. During the summer, they don't do as many conventions because there's a lot more uh, other things to do during the summer and other places to go. But they do use it a lot during the fall and the winter. And it's really pretty neat that they still use it that way and it's still that, that sort of specter to it. And you can go by and go into some of these rooms when you've got a conference going on there. And it's kind of interesting to be able to go into it. So I find that, uh, I find that kind of interesting because Disney wanted to promote itself and it promote its brand and sell it. And the way to do that was by creating this convention center space that they could use that way. And the hotel is a great hotel and a great way to show off some other things that they're talking about and some of the really amazing things that are in the hotel space. But it's, you know, the hotel itself, you know, you look at it and you go, yeah, the rooms are okay. They're nothing great. Are they worth the price of admission? I don't know. I mean, when we were spending between six and $10 a night back in the early seventies, yeah, they were great. But for, you know, a hundred dollars a night, they were okay. And for a couple of hundred dollars a night, maybe not so much. And now they built this vacation club property right next to it, the uh, Bay Lake Towers. And those rooms are beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but it takes away from the charm and the nostalgia that is the contemporary. The Contemporary always had this special place just because it was so cool and futuristic looking. And it had the monorail that rode right through it. And by the way, if I haven't meant mentioned this before, or maybe I haven't, I just want to talk about it again. The monorail, when it comes through, it comes through an opening. And the reason that it can come through the opening and bugs don't come in is because they have this huge stream of air that blows downward. And by blowing the air downward, they're actually, the bugs can't get through. They can't uh, penetrate that, uh, that huge curtain of air. So that's how they keep the bugs out, but make the monorail go through. So it's kind of a neat thing when you think about it, that they actually thought this through to that level. So the hotel itself is really interesting. You know, the way the rooms work, if you want to get across to the other side, you have to do these wonky things to go across. And, you know, it's kind of funny the way they set it up, but it is actually kind of neat. And it's an interesting design and there's a lot to it. And it's kind of one of those fun places to go. I just, I like every once in a while when I have an opportunity, I like to just go in there and, you know, just hang out and have a bite to eat. Go to, the, um, go to one of the cafes that's there in the, in the building and just have something to eat and just hang out for a while. It's just remarkable. I, I love going in this building. There's something about it. Maybe it reminds me of childhood. I'm not sure. But I, I find it kind of neat. And it's so, the design of it is so clever. And as far as I know, U.S. Steel didn't really use this design methodology a whole lot after this. They did a few things with it. But mostly other construction techniques came along and they did other things beyond that. But still, it was pretty neat that they were trying it and they had this idea for selling it and using Disney as kind of a test case for them. So there you go. I hope for a couple of minutes I've taken your mind off the world and talked about the world, uh, the Walt Disney World. And, you know, I hope you enjoyed kind of hearing about this. And like I said, I'll put a couple of links to, in my show notes page to the uh, videos I made on the same topic so you can watch the videos that U.S. Steel made and you can see some other things that went on. It's kind of neat to actually sit there and watch it and see how it was constructed. Well, that is my show for this week, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, 
I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 